drawing ever closer to a general election, so guess what is causing would-be voters the most sleepless nights? It's the economy, stupid. It always is. And don't take my word for it. The economy tops the table when people are polled about the priorities. In fact, in an Ipsos Mori poll before Christmas, the economy came first and inflation and prices came next. People are worried. In the same poll, 50% said they expect the economy to worsen over the next year. So, are they right? After all, it's been a rocky old time. Interest rates have been soaring. We've had really high inflation. Mortgage rates have hit eye-watering levels. And at the same time, the UK tax burden is historically high. And yet, government departments are facing huge squeezes on their budgets. And public services are under intense pressure to deliver more for less. So just how bad is the country's economic situation? What does this fiscal inheritance mean for whoever wins the next election? And what constraints will they be forced to govern under? How much is the UK's economy at the mercy of global events? Things like disrupted supply lines, for example, or aggressive world leaders with the keys to the gas pipes. What can a UK government actually do to improve things? And just how bad was the chaos and confusion of Liz Truss's mini-budget for the UK economy and the economic reputation of the Conservative Party? I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. I'm Arnand Menon, Director of UK and a Changing Europe. And I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And this is The Expert Factor. Okay, Paul, so unsurprisingly, we're going to start with you. How healthy or unhealthy would you say the UK economy is right now? Well, it's not terribly healthy. I wouldn't say it's on its deathbed, but it's um, struggling to... It's struggling. I wouldn't to... say it's on its deathbed, <laughs> says that's Paul a, Johnson. That's the most optimistic line we've had from this podcast Super. so far. <laughs> well, you asked me about its health, and it's not on its deathbed. That's not bad. Um, it's struggling to get up, though. It's uh, the best way. And Andy is just losing it. <laughs> I'm just wondering where this medical analogy is going to go. Yeah. Sorry. It's um, I, th- I think the best description of the economy at the moment is stagnant, flatlining, not doing very much. Each month, each quarter, sometimes we see a little bit of growth, sometimes we see a little bit of contraction at the moment. And I think most forecasters are expecting something rather similar over this year. So we can expect the economy to be roughly the same size at the end of the year as it is at the moment. Maybe it will grow a little bit. But remember, in normal times, and it's quite hard to remember normal times, we might expect the economy to be growing at a couple of percent a year, and it's really not managing that. And I think particularly striking is if you look at the national income per person, it's still no higher, really, than it was back in 2019. If you look at people's incomes, probably they're going to be no higher, maybe even a bit, a little bit lower come an election later this year, as they were at the election back in 2019. So you put all of that together and you've got an economy that is not cratering, it's not in deep recession, but it's just not growing. We're not getting better off. We might get a little bit better off over this year as wages seem to be going a bit ahead of inflation. But over the five years of this parliament, it's been a story of not much change. And obviously we had the problem of COVID in in the middle, but even so, that's a pretty poor record. But we're not a massive European outlier though, are we? Now, it's very striking if you look across Europe and more generally, most economies are struggling. The US is a bit of an exception. Mm. 
And you'll hear all sorts of numbers and comparisons and so on from the various politicians. It is the case that the economy is doing a bit better than we thought in the summer, as the Office of National Statistics decided it had mismeasured various things. And actually, the economy had grown overall to be bigger than it was pre-COVID. But what really matters is how big it is when you take account of the size of the population, which has been growing. And per person, it really hasn't changed very much over that period. We've not technically been in recession, but does that really matter? I mean, there's a sort of debate that happens about whether we're going to slip into recession or not. But the main relevant factor is that the economy just isn't growing. Exactly. I mean, there, there, there is a sort of agreed definition of a recession, which is two quarters of consecutive contraction or negative growth. And what we're getting at the moment is quarters of very small growth and then a quarter of very small falling back. It's not technically a recession at the moment. We may end up with two quarters of small contraction, so that would be technically a recession, but we won't notice the difference between that and two quarters of flatlining or very small growth. So the discussion about whether it's technically a recession or not isn't terribly interesting. Clearly, if um, you know if you end up in a big recession where the economy's really shrinking, that that's an issue. But at the moment, just flatlining, really boring in that sense. And then. <laughs> Um, Rishi Sunak had various economic pledges in his five pledges that he set for 2023. What's your view on how those are working out? So the economic ones were from memory, he says, panicking, uh, halving inflation, reducing debt and getting the economy growing again. Inflation has come down and he's met his target, though, of course, it wasn't him that met it. It's very interesting how the Bank of England was responsible for inflation going up and the government was responsible for inflation coming down. Growth, as Paul said, is proving elusive. And debt, there's been some clever accounting that Paul can explain in more detail, but the government has just about managed to argue that debt will be coming down, that they've been pulled up, I think, by the Statistics Authority for the fact that actually at the moment there is no sign of it. But I think the interesting thing in your question is, does this matter and does it matter politically? Now, Paul mentioned the US being an outlier. And one of the really interesting things about the US is their economy, by our standards, is booming in terms of job creation, in terms of growth. And yet Joe Biden seems to be getting precious little credit for that. So that link between economic outcomes and political credit is is an interesting one. And the other thing I think, and here I'd point to loads of good work done by the British election study and people like Jane Green, is this concept of economic insecurity. I think the key thing is how secure people feel about their economic state and their economic futures. And the problem for the government at the moment, I think, is a lot of people feel very very worried about the future. And that tends to translate into people voting Labour. And Paul, what should we blame for this? We've talked about the difference between economists. us and the US. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> economists. <laughs> beyond beyond the forecasts of the weather, <laughs> sounds fair enough. Are we still living through the impact of the economic crash? We know there's a Brexit lag continuing. Or is this still something to do with trustonomics or what are, what are the main factors you think which are stymieing growth in the UK economy? Well, as Anand suggested just now, it's not particularly specific to the UK. I mean, the UK has done worse over the last 15 years or so than many other countries, but everywhere has slowed down compared with what was happening before. And actually, we haven't done dramatically worse than some other countries. So there is very much an international element to this. Clearly, there's been long-term consequences of COVID, very different to the ones we expected. I mean, very tight 
labour market, people withdrawing from the labour market, putting pressure on inflation. We obviously had the energy price spike last year. We actually had a government which has spent more on COVID, more on supporting people through energy than other countries, and that's created some of the problems around debt and so on. But I think there's a broader set of issues afflicting the UK economy. First of all, we were particularly hard hit by the financial crash back in 2008-2010 because the financial sector is so big. We've, as you've alluded to, been affected to some extent by Brexit. And actually since Brexit, and right through certainly into the Liz Trust Premiership, the degree of political uncertainty, the focus of politicians on themselves, on internal division and so on, itself creates economic problems. Bad politics is bad economics. And I don't mean bad politics in the sense of bad policy. I mean bad politics in the sense of failure to govern in a sort of coherent way, which we did suffer, I think it's fair to say, for a significant period after 2016. That impacts on inward investment and broad investment across the economy. So you can point to all sorts of things which I think add up to a bigger issue for the UK, some very big political economy issues, and then lots of more specific things, failure to reform the tax system, failure to reform the planning system, failure to have enough public investment and so on. But put all of that together and you've got not just over the last three or four years, but a long period of economic poor performance. But let me stress again, whilst a bit worse than some other countries, we're not a dramatic outlier. What's interesting about that is that that causal relationship between economics and politics goes both ways. So bad politics, short-term politics leads to bad economic outcomes. But I also think that bad economic outcomes increases the possibility of very nasty zero-sum politics. I mean, one of the things about growth is it helps you to avoid some of those really hideous trade-offs that you have to make absent such growth. And so that, that politics economy nexus is absolutely fundamental, I think. Yeah. And actually, the lack of growth creates other divisions. So one of the reasons that the older generation, for example, has done relatively well and the younger generation really very badly over mm. the last 15 years is directly down to the economics, to the lack of earnings growth, to very low interest rates, pushing up asset prices and so on. And you can see the impact of that on politics. Yeah. But what I take from what you just said, Paul, is that perhaps one of the, the best outcomes for the next election, whoever wins, could just be a period of stability a government which has an agenda which is pushing forward and that investors can think, okay, I roughly know what the policy environment is going to look like for the next five years. Absolutely. It's a necessary condition. It's not a sufficient condition. I would actually think we're sort of more there now anyway than we were two years ago and certainly than, than, than four years ago. The current government isn't wholly stable, but I think people see it as more consistent and rational in its policies than we had under Liz Truss or Boris Johnson, who got an opposition which is broadly providing quite a lot of messages about stability and reassurance that it will behave in a particular way, which I think is different to what we saw from the opposition before 2019. So I think we're already in a different place than we were, certainly in that period after Brexit, but also in a different place to where we were a couple of years ago. I think that's a good point. I think it's important to say that we can overdo this. I mean, this is the maelstrom of social media. There's all the talk about, you know, the country's been trashed. We have no reputation. Our institutions have been ruined by Boris Johnson and so on. Actually, we are still, I think, broadly regarded as a place that is pretty well government that has decent institutions 
I suppose one of the paradoxes of list trust is that institutions like the OBR might even have emerged from that mini budget strengthened rather than weakened. So we do have relatively stable institutions. We do have the English language. There are a lot of strengths that we have as a country. So I think, you know, without without wanting to talk about doomsters and gloomsters, it's worth recognising that we still have several assets and that whilst our politics could be better, it's perhaps not quite as dismal as some particularly opponents of the current government like to paint it as being. Older listeners, and Anne will remember the first incarnation of this <laughs> government. Older I'm directing that at you, particularly. Um, I just want to think back to the coalition, the sort of first incarnation of the Conservative government, which was defined very much by the push for austerity after the financial crisis and that slogan that we were all in it together. Did austerity work out, or do you think we're still feeling the effects of that policy era? I suppose part of the answer depends on how you would define working out. If, for instance, hypothetically, you were someone who had an ideological project that was aimed at shrinking the state and cutting public spending by levels that were for most observers quite eye-watering, then actually it turned out quite well because they did shrink the state. If you're looking in terms of economic outcomes, then I think it's more mixed. I mean, Paul's predecessor at the IFS before he was demoted to running the OBR uh, – was I think it was in 2012 where he made that intervention saying that basically austerity had helped limit the amount of growth we'd achieved. And I think with the gift of hindsight, it seems to me in the current context that fiscal tightening on that sort of scale at a period when interest rates were just about zero and we didn't face the same constraints, whatever the rhetoric at the time of a country like Greece was a mistake. We obviously weren't all in it together in the sense that we can look back on the totally predictable impacts of things like the two-child limit on child poverty. And it's not rocket science that that was going to increase child poverty. And of course, I mean, in in one sense, the government was unlucky in that the worst thing you could possibly have after a prolonged period of austerity is something like COVID, where you've already sort of cut a lot of public services back to the bone where we had this really weird model of health service where we run it at what 90, 95% of capacity in peacetime, as it were, which means that, you know, if you enter a crisis, you're, already, you're going to face a lot more problems than other European countries for whom that figure is about 80%. So, no, I don't think austerity was much of a success. I think we're still living with the problems of austerity. We see that in terms of something we've talked about before, health service productivity, you know, we can date the decline in capital expenditure in health and indeed across public services back to that time of austerity. And that those sort of cuts in, in capital expenditure, which might have looked good on the balance sheet then, have only served to increase the problems we face now in terms of the productivity of public services. I'm waiting for Paul to shake his head at me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, I mean, I'd add a couple of things. First, on the definition of austerity, which is about a tight running a tight budget when you've we're trying to bring down a big deficit. Most European countries did the same, except that they did it more on the tax side than we did. Ireland's an exception, actually. I mean, they, I mean, they'd look at us and think, where was the austerity? I mean, they cut spending much more yeah. dramatically, and that's actually turned out very successful in many ways for them. There was uh, significant pain in the interim there, for there, a lot there, of people. There, there certainly was. There certainly was. I think the issue the current government is facing is that actually over a long period, and if you look over a sort of 50-year period, the UK has been, if this is what you want to achieve, it's been remarkably successful at keeping the size of the state down. And if you look 50 or 60 years back, we had tax and spending at perfectly normal European levels, actually, if anything, a little bit above some other European countries. And then for a long period, we've managed to keep that stable, whereas they've been increasing it. 
And it's during this parliament, actually, where, in a sense, the, the dam has burst. You know, we've, we've had COVID, we've had more debt interest payments, we've had the pressure of ageing and, and health spending and so on. And this, this, this government, I think it's one of the reasons for the political problems it's facing, has almost inevitably had to raise taxes and spending just to keep things vaguely on track. But as the IFG's work shows, not very well on track if you look at actually, you know, the performance of the health system, the justice system, the local government system, social care system, they're all struggling. They've all got worse, if anything, over the last 15 years. And that's the that's the real challenge, I think, for the next parliament is, are we going to try and rebuild all of those public services? Are we going to make some choices that we're not going to do some of these things in the way that we have in the past? If we're going to rebuild them, are we willing to have an even higher tax burden than we've got at the moment, which, as you said, Anna, is already at its highest level in peacetime? These are the real, not just economic, but political choices and challenges facing us over the next election. And the other aspect of that, if you take that long-term view, is that one of the reasons we've managed to keep the state at a similar sort of size so effectively is by slashing defence spending you know, from 1940s and 50s levels to now. And of course, now, thinking back to Grant Shapps' speech at Lancaster House, thinking back to what David Cameron has been saying on the telly about the dashboard with all the red lights flashing, it looks like there's going to be significant pressure not to take defence spending back to 20%, but certainly to increase it at a time when the demands from other parts of the public sector are ramping up as well. So those choices might actually be getting slightly harder because of that. Not just slightly harder, I mean, (laughs) a lot lot harder. A little ray of sunshine over the table again. (laughs) Suddenly, that's what Matt Chorley calls me every Monday on uh, on Times Radio. (laughs) And I guess, uh, you know, the other point is the international context, right? I mean, as you say, the context of the threats that the UK is facing. But if we see a Trump win in the US and his view that other countries are not contributing enough to NATO and what that does to, to the NATO alliance, that could also put increased Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, what, what perplexes me about Trump is post-Iowa caucus, you hear all these commentaries saying Trump is now the front runner. I mean, Trump has been the front runner for ages as far as I could. I mean, I don't know whether this is a sort of collective denial thing going on, but it seems to me we should be working from the assumption that Trump is going to win and planning accordingly. Okay, that's a positive thought. Paul, turning to the budget, which will be happening in a few weeks, Maybe one more before the election, but this is probably the, the main one where the government will want to get its key retail policies, let's say, out to the electorate. What do you anticipate us seeing in the budget this year? Yeah, well, it ruined my Christmas slightly. Announcing the budget on the 27th of December, I thought was really quite unkind. And there's certainly some Treasury civil servants who thought that um, when the news came out that we would get the budget on the 6th of March, which is unusually early. I mean, it's a, it's a week or so earlier than we've had it in recent years. It's not the earliest ever, but it's, it's unusually early. And there was obviously speculation as to whether that would mean an early election. I'm not sure that's what it's going to imply. I mean, there's two questions. What, what would be the right thing politically to do? Do, what would be the right thing economically to do? And the answer to those questions is not necessarily the same. It's pretty clear from all of the briefing that the Chancellor is going to be looking for more tax cuts. Remember back in the autumn statement in November, we had the announcement of the two pence off national insurance contributions, which came in during January, in fact. The Chancellor may well feel that he's able to claim he's got space for tax cuts. Interest rates are coming down faster than expected. My guess and this is little more than a guess, is that the Office of Budget Responsibility will say that on their projections, debt's going to be falling a little bit faster in five years' time than they thought back in November. I think the chances are that Jeremy Hunt will say, well, in that case, I've got a few more billion for some tax cuts. Now, there's two issues there. One, 
the problem is that every time public finances get worse, chancellors tend to say, and we've shown this in numbers, well, we'll just kind of live with that and we're not going to increase taxes or cut spending. And every time the public finances get better, they say, ha ha, we can cut taxes or increase spending. And the result, of course, is that over time you ratchet up the debt. So economically, I think there's very little case for tax cuts. And I would be willing to wager quite a lot that any net tax cuts we see in March will be undone within the first year or two of a new parliament. But if that's the route we're going to go down, then there's a political judgment. Are the government going to, as they keep on hinting at, spend a lot on cutting inheritance tax? My guess is not, if if only for the political reason, that that's one I think that Labour feel pretty comfortable about saying they would undo. Do they take more off national insurance or income tax? Well, they could do. You know, 1p off income tax is 7 billion or so. 1p off national insurance is 5 billion. Also, you can always find five, seven, ten billion down the back of the sofa um, for, uh, for, for for a bit of a tax. Pop around Paul's house a It's a very deep sofa um, uh, for that kind of cut. But as I say, I think the key economic point is that with all of the pressures that we've just talked about following austerity on public spending, there probably have to be undone. It, it, when we talk about this, I'm always reminded. As I really am very old, of 1992. And Norman Lamont then, as Chancellor, cut taxes in the run-up to the 1992 election and then imposed some pretty big tax increases straight after the 1992 election. And he says in his memoirs, my pre-election budget was my worst economically but best politically. And my post-election budget was my best economically and worst politically. <laughs> and I think therein lies the problem. And, and, and from Labour's point of view, the potential for tax cuts in the budget looks like one example of what people have been saying, that there's a risk this government is trying to take a bit of a scorched earth approach to its policy agenda setting traps and spending now so that it can make the case that Labour would raise taxes and be less conducive post-election. I mean, given where the polls are, I'd be surprised if there weren't people in CCHQ thinking, how do we make a Labour hopefully only term as difficult as possible? I think, as Paul said, whatever the Tories do, if there are tax cuts now, I think Labour can quite easily come in and say, actually, we've seen the books now and things are far worse than the Tories let on. And so I think there'll be a bit of political space to reverse them. And we shouldn't all... Very naughty when governments do that, particularly when they've got the OBR and the IFS and others. I mean, they, they, they won't. There's nothing to find out. It's all out there in the open. I know they'll do it and governments always do it, but it's very naughty. Well, no, we're still getting that there is no money left note waved around. So, I mean, politics is politics and it's slightly divorced from the reality of the economics on occasion. But there's also some good things. I mean, I was struck with the rather good white paper on development that Andrew Mitchell and David Cameron produced a few weeks ago, that they're talking to a 2030 horizon. I think that's genuinely a good thing because my sense is that they were thinking Labour is going to be sympathetic to this. So we have a chance to put in place a medium term policy framework. So it's not all There's deeply the cynical. Power, yeah, yeah. Um, announcements. Well, I have to say, some of it is probably deeply cynical, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you've got a new UK and a Changing Europe paper coming out soon, which says, although the picture on the economy isn't entirely cheerful, there are some positives. 
Yeah. So, I mean, we include in this a sort of SWOT analysis of the economy, trying to figure out what the strengths and weaknesses are. And the strengths are obviously there. The strengths are partly there in terms of people, that we have a highly educated, flexible workforce, that school results overall have got better, though inequality continues to blight our education system all the more so after COVID, that actually the areas in which we excel, the sort of high value added services look like becoming a greater part of the international economy going forward. So there are opportunities for us there. And and sort of paradoxically, I suppose, one of the findings is that one of our strengths lies in our weaknesses. That is to say that we know that we have that long tail of unproductive businesses in the UK economy, a lot of which have suffered from a lack of investment in technologies and so on. And actually, we can improve the performance of places and firms that aren't doing as well as they should simply by copying some of our nearest competitors. That it's not rocket science, that actually the solution is there. And there might be ways actually of turning that weakness, if not into a strength, and at least getting progress going in terms of that tail by policies of investment, should those policies be forthcoming. Because of course, one of the big doubts about a Labour government is how much it is proposing to invest. I, I agree with all of that, Anand. I mean, there are clearly <laughs> sectors of the UK economy which are doing well. And in European context, our tech sector, and actually particularly around London and Oxford and Cambridge and so on is doing extremely well. The problem is is partly the sectoral one, that there are mm. companies and organisations in each sector that are falling behind. But it's very, very particularly a geographical one as well. And I think this is where you know, economic performance and sort of social progress are so closely Absolutely. interlinked that uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's become a truism that London and the South East doing pretty well, London is a world-class economy, but you look at Manchester and Birmingham and uh, the other major cities of the UK, but particularly England, particularly those north of Oxford and Cambridge, and they're doing really, really badly. And, and I'm sorry to say this to people listening in Manchester who may think that Manchester is a success story. It really isn't. I mean, it's terrible, its economy, relative to similar-sized cities across the rest of Europe. It's got a little bit better over time, but it's still miles behind where it should be. I mean, one thing I'd add is that part of that is inherent in the nature of our economy, isn't it? I mean, if you do manufacturing like the Germans, you can have lots of manufacturing centres, whereas there's a specific agglomeration effect in high value services that means places like London are going to keep on doing well. And it's quite hard uh, to get that sort of same sort of thing going in other places. Though I noticed the Resolution Foundation as one of its recommendations at its 2030 conference was saying, actually, that is precisely what we need to be doing is encouraging those sort of high value services in other places outside London. Yeah, it's a hard um, yeah. it's a hard nut to crack. I mean, once you're in this equilibrium, breaking out of that equilibrium yeah. requires a really big and concerted effort over a long, long period. And that's the sort of thing that our governments really struggle to do. Yeah. And then we have planning. Um, <laughs> we do. Which both of the main parties seem to be obsessed with, and yet the historical record on being able to build houses in particular so that people can live in the places where there might be the jobs that they, they want to do is incredibly poor. Has anyone done the maths on the significance of planning reform for GDP growth and how that might have an impact on the economy? I think it's pretty hard to put numbers on that because who knows exactly what the effect of planning reform would be. There are numbers on how much more expensive it is to build infrastructure in the UK than mm -hmm. it is in, in, in other countries, for example. And a lot of that is down to some of the rules around it. I saw something the other day about the hundreds of thousands of pages that had to be put together just to 
build the um, crossing over the River Thames east of the Dartford crossing, which I think 14 years after it was initially mooted, a decision will finally be made on whether it's allowed to happen over the next three months after spending hundreds of millions of pounds before anything's even happened. And it's the sort of thing, if you dived into it, you no doubt would find good reasons for every single one of these bits of paper and and the legal issues and the protecting the local environment and the housing and the newts and so on and so on. But you step back from it and look and you think this is this has got to be absurd. But it is something that governments have tried to grapple with. And for whatever reason, even someone as uh, sort of terrier-like as Michael Gove has um, mm. has struggled to make real change. That's partly each time a you know, government loses a by-election because they were building something, they then junk what they were going to do. Uh, it's something to do with the, I mean, the, the power of local MPs who may oppose a bit of infrastructure, even if it's good for the country as a whole, and they can have outsized influence within a government. Even if, as I believe, there is a very strong economic case for liberalising the planning system, you have to appreciate that it will leave some people worse off. There are mm. trade-offs here. Mm. There are always trade-offs, and I don't want a, you know, I don't have a back garden of a road built through. But you know, if I had a back garden, I wouldn't want a road built through my back garden. I mean, we do have numbers on house prices and rent prices, though, don't we? Nominally, I think for people who study housing, affordable housing is a situation where median house prices are three times median incomes. And I think in, I mean, London now, we're many, many multiples of that. But even in the Northeast, I think it's over six. So people can't afford housing. And to be fair, Labour have made quite a bold promise, it seems to me, to build one and a half million houses. Whether or not we end up in a situation where the opposition criticises government for not building and the government gets bogged down in bureaucracy, I hope not. But I mean, at the very least, what we can say is that this issue of planning and of house building is now firmly on the political agenda, which is a big step forward from a few years ago, I think. Absolutely. And Anand, just to give you a chance to talk about your favourite subject... The harm from Brexit I mentioned earlier in in the pod as sort of a fact which most economists now agree on the hit to the economy, which has happened. Though not the scale. Indeed. Um, Should we think about the impact of Brexit on the economy as a sort of one-off or is it an ongoing process, as Peter Foster often argues? Well, it's, it's ongoing. It's ongoing in several ways, I suppose. And we'll talk about this in more detail next week, so I'll keep this very, very brief. It's ongoing because those costs of trading are there forever. It's ongoing because we're not facing the full costs yet. In fact, the plan at the moment is that the government phases in checks on animal products at the end of this month. So the date, the 31st of January, they're meant to be phasing them in, and we're not sure yet whether they're going to delay for the sixth time. So there's more to come. And it's ongoing, I suppose, because in political terms, there is always going to be that conversation about whether we could or should be doing something to ease those burdens. And that's something that Labour will be thinking about when it comes in. So no, I mean, Brexit is in that sense for life. Uh, <laughs> not just, just for Christmas. Christmas. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Although a lot of our FGAs enjoyed it over many Christmases, I would say. <laughs> I was going to say, listening to Paul moan about the, some, an announcement on the 27th took me back to the Trade and Cooperation exactly. Agreement on Christmas <laughs> Eve. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and that's it for another episode of The Expert Factor. A lot of numbers in today's show. That's why I was chairing. And a lot for us all to think about ahead of the next election. A lot to worry about too, I'm afraid. But maybe some glimmers of hope. Thanks, Anand, for uh, <laughs> throwing us out there. Green shoots, maybe, or hidden diamonds. <laughs> See you all next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Expert Factor. Remember, you can find us at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Do subscribe and please leave us a review. We like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. 
We'll be back next week for another deep dive. Please do join us and do get in touch to suggest the type of topics you'd like us to explore. Until then, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor.